0: Hey, listeners, this is Richard. Just two very quick things. First and foremost, special thanks goes to Jessica Mazaros from WUSF for letting us use their studios to record this episode. Thanks, Jess. And second, you don't have to wait till next Friday for the next episode of Three Song Stories after this because we are moving. The new episodes will start to come out this Monday, the 13th. From then on, it'll be every Monday, just like it's every Friday, up till now. So you're only a few days away from another new episode. All right, on to the show. One,
1: two, three.
2: Welcome to Three Song Stories, the now five-year-old podcast and radio show that builds biographical bridges between our guests and you, our listeners. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is Dan Byrne. Dan's a singer-songwriter who has written thousands of songs over the course of his life. He cut his teeth on live performance in Chicago folk clubs in the early 80s before moving to Los Angeles, where he began pursuing music full-time in earnest. Dan has released 30 albums and EPs and played thousands of shows across North America and Europe. His songs have appeared in numerous films and TV shows, including original songs for the film Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, which if you haven't seen it, you ought to. Dan has a loyal, now multi-generational following, which includes me. I discovered Dan's songs when the guy who made our theme song, Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan, waltzed into the coffee shop I worked at in the early 2000s and played some of Dan's songs at our open mic night, and I've been a fan of his ever since. And he's been at the top of my list for this show since we launched it five years ago. So needless to say, having him in the guest chair is a real treat. Hey there, Dan. How
1: are you? I'm real good. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Happy to be here. How'd it go last night? It was the best. Yeah? Yeah. I opened for Roger Daltrey here in Clearwater. And uh, I had opened for The Who a year ago in Memphis. That one went went well. I remember doing my set and going out to the sound area and watching their set in front of the same crowd and just feeling like I learned so much and wanted to do it again, you know, and so I kind of got to do it again last night and I felt like I applied all the things I learned, so it was pretty satisfying. How'd that come about?
2: Like, do you know Roger Daltry? Do you guys have some sort of overlap somehow?
1: He started coming to some shows of mine way back, like, late 90s. Remember, he was at the Troubadour in L.A., and then a few months later, I was playing at the bottom line, and he was there, and he came back and talked to us for a while. And that kind of started whatever relationship we have. He included a couple of my songs in his list of favorites when he won some big award. Mm-hmm. I sent him a, a, a demo of a song I had just written called Regent Street just a few years ago. And a few months later, I got this incredible version of him doing it with, with his band. Wow. Uh, which I then used as a blueprint when I recorded it. <laughs> it's just, I was like covering my own song.
2: Wow. Covering a cover of your song.
1: Uh, yeah. I think he'd been trying to get me to do this for a while. And it, it, I'm really glad it Happened last night.
2: Awesome. Um, so as I told you, I woke up this morning. There was a post from you on Instagram. It was a bit of you doing a song, um, you know, uh, and so I'm going to try to get you to do a little live songwriting. So if red states have Waffle Houses and blue states don't, mm. what is the inverse of that song?
1: Well, What do blue states if, have that if, red states don't? Yeah, if,
2: if blue states have blah, 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 <laughs> red states don't.
1: Well, judging from my drive from my hotel to here this morning... Red states don't have near enough Starbucks. <laughs> 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 and blue
2: states got plenty. That's a good answer. So um, have you listened to any music
1: so far today? I listened to WMNF. Ah, the community station. Yeah, which I was on yesterday with oh, a really? great interviewer named Marcy Finkelstein. Cool. And uh, so what did I, I heard Sean Colvin covering uh, Bruce's Tougher Than the Rest. Hmm. I heard Ted Hawkins. Uh, who I used to hear in L.A. on the boardwalk, and then he kind of got famous, and then he died. <laughs> it's pretty tough. It's one of those stations you trust to always have something good.
2: Absolutely. Um, okay, so where did you grow up, and how would you describe the musical background of your childhood while growing up?
1: I grew up in a small town in Iowa called Mount Vernon, a little college town where my dad was a piano professor. Hmm. He came from Lithuania, and then studied in paris with great piano teachers and then made it to what was in palestine just in time out of lithuania and was in israel for a long time and my mom came out of germany took one of the last kinder transports out of there in 39 they got out just in time they were both steeped in the classical tradition that's mostly what i heard they were
2: playing instruments. What would you know? You play guitar now. I know for sure you play harmonica. What was your first instrument, and how f- old were you?
1: I was six when I started playing the cello. A colleague of my dad's, cellist named Paul Olefsky, came and played with my dad one day. And I, up until then, my dad, of course, played the piano six, eight hours a day at home. My mom played quite well when he wasn't on there and my sister was already taking lessons so I really wanted no part of the piano nor was there really any room at that point <laughs> point. and when I saw this guy playing this other thing that had a bow and strings and wood and looked cool and made this cool you know dark eerie sound I thought well that's for me so I sawed away pretty fruitlessly for years without an orchestra to play with, you know, just kind of sawing solitarily yeah, alone yeah. in my Early room. Early
2: in a cello career by yourself is just a lot of
1: huh, huh. Right. <laughs> well, as I found out later, it's not a song instrument, which was such a great revelation when I moved over to the guitar um, but yeah, that was, that was what I played. That was my attempt to be a rebel in my home. Was there any,
2: you know, music from the outside world or did you bring music from the outside world into that world? And well, what would it be like? Where did you, what did you start locking onto to that wasn't, you know, classical
1: music? This is going to go right into my first story. Okay, well, let's
2: just go there then. Okay. We're, we're here now, then All let's right. go there.
1: So I guess I, you know, I was very young. And I think up until this point, what had pretty much been in my musical consciousness was Chopin, Mozart, Schubert, Beethoven, whatever was wafting out of my dad's music room. And, uh, you know, the stuff that really excited me was Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsodies. you know, these it just make you crazy. And it made me crazy at the age of four. I would just run up and down the hall just with this. And I think the Lone Ranger theme, too, because that was on TV. You know, this is, again, that, that manic, crazed thing that I guess later I would— uh, equate with what rock and roll does to you mm-hmm. but at that time that was as close as i could get to that frenzied uh you know musical yeah, yeah. feeling um uh and then one night i mean I, with this first one it, i almost it, it, i'm almost embarrassed because it feels pretty cliche and i feel like this this one is so many people's, you know, important musical, a part of their musical story, but I don't care because it remains possibly the best, most exciting three minutes, two 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 and a half minutes maybe of music I've ever heard. I'm four years old and Ed Sullivan is on and the Beatles are, and there they were. I was just hit full force. I mean, it was the song itself, and their the sound of their voices and their harmonies, and the the rhythm of it, and the just balls to the wall. You know, it, it just starts frenzied, and it stays frenzied. It was a whole. It was my mind must have just completely blown apart. I know it did. I banged on a metal tray with spoons the whole time, like Ringo. And the next day, I made my dad take me uptown to Art Kudart's barber barbershop for a beetle haircut, whatever the <laughs> hell that meant. And my dad walked in. He said, he want beetle haircut. <laughs> and Art, I don't know, he probably put a bowl on my head. And and your and dad I, was cool with that? Oh, Yeah. He thought that was great. Um, I don't. I think he was am, amused by them, certainly. I mean, there was something Marx Brothers y about them, even before the movies, I think, you know. There was something playful about them. And, you know, I mean, maybe some people were threatened by them, but my, my parents weren't threatened by them. They just thought. Um, but, I, you know, I just. That's all I listened to, basically, for the next eight years, wow, um to the point where I was just listening to I would listen to, i would once I just knew everything for and back i I would listen to him at high speed, Just hmm. you know just to I get li- through more <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> or just a different take on it. I don't know, I think it helped me um looking back sort of into it song form hmm. you know you just scrunch it down yeah, it's it becomes a like, little
2: bit more abstract in a way or something
1: or concrete because you're huh. hearing the the two and a half minute song in 40 seconds huh. you know and compressing it down and just seeing the but I wasn't thinking about that I just like the way it sounds.
0: <laughs> I really like this because we just had John McEwen talking about um running them at half speed Mm. Or even a quarter speed to oh, wow. to to learn to the learn
2: songs. Yeah, that was how to learn right? notes before They'd, you had sheet music. Wow. Or They'd or run whatever.
0: the turbo the turntable at half speed so you could play along, and then when you got good enough, you could run it full speed. Oh, well, I didn't have that would, kind of patience. And you had to tra- <laughs> and you had to transpose because it would also ch- mess with that's the pitch. That's right.
1: Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I I still to this day have never heard anything as exciting as this song. I have. Uh, A nice
2: modern, you know, remastered version. But I also have the Ed Sullivan version, which you want to hear. Oh,
1: wow. I'd love to hear that. All right. Um, uh, I'll just say, I mean, it was the music, but it was like the whole whole culture kind of fell into my lap, you know. Because up until this time, I'd been, you know, growing up, even though we were in a little town in Iowa, it was like growing up in 19th century Vienna or something (laughs) in my household. And this just, you know, before I discovered sports... That brought a lot of the same American culture. It was so different, but it was it was also English. That was really cool. And I had English cousins and that kinda connected us too. Hmm. It was just it was it was too much to even comprehend, I just knew that. I love this and this was this was for me.
2: All right, well, let's listen to it. This is Dan Byrne's first song today on this week's episode of Three Song Stories. It's The Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand, uh, released on their 1964 album Meet the Beatles, but this is the Ed Sullivan
1: Show version. It's really striking and interesting because I, the, the tempo is a little chilled out from the record. I guess John's vocal is way down. So you don't really get the, the sense of the really great harmony. Right. Um, wh- what you did get, I guess, was the visual, which must have been incredible, and, of course, the the room full of girls screaming. Yeah, you know?
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, do you listen to the Beatles as part of your like musical consumption these days? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, my daughter, who's now 13, is... As big a Beatles fan as there is, and she's taken up the guitar, and she plays a lot of Beatles songs, hmm. and she's years and years ahead of where I was, and so she's a whiz with bar chords, and she's got a strong right hand. She can play anything. It's it's pretty amazing, and she's just big Beatles. When did you get your first guitar? I got my first guitar when I was, I think, 14. It was about three days after I first heard Dylan (laughs) consciously. This was my great symbolic moment where I traded in my cello for a guitar and started that whole nonsense. That'll be in the Dan Byrne biopic
2: someday. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Did you take right to it? Had you done enough
1: cello work that you had a, a way in? Oh yeah. I was just th- so thirsty for this. I'd been writing songs and making up songs without a real vehicle f- for it uh for some time. Yeah, I just needed I needed something to Yeah, I needed a song instrument.
2: Was it steel string? Yeah. Do you remember the first song you wrote? Do you re- or the what's the first song that you remember having written?
1: I wrote uh, a long, sprawling song called The Ballad of Andy Farquharth <laughs> about a street punk who becomes a Supreme Court justice <laughs> and then dies in a bar fight. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I wasn't messing around.
2: Ugh. Is is that somewhere online where people <laughs> listen to it? No, sir, it's not. How old are you? When so you wrote got that? Off,
1: you were off to a running start, is what you're telling us. I mean, I I, I don't know, fourteen or fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> Call you people coming here, and it was you know Dylan inflected to the max. I think and all you people coming here. The tale of Andy Farquharth. He died late one night last week. Shut up in a bar. Oh, how did he live, and why did that man die? Andy Farquharth. Only you know. We must speculate. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> See, Dan, you could, Danny,
0: you uh, if if we did the biopic, they could just they could dress you up like Dylan. And you would <laughs> you would be performing, and then the young you <laughs> would see you. Oh, uh, yeah, you could talk. do a cameo. <laughs> you would be Dylan in your
2: biopic.
1: Sure. Yeah. They, as long uh, as they uh, pay uh, me double scale. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so uh, when, where did you fit into the scene equation when you were in high school? Were you a kid walking around with a guitar? Were you a, like a theater kid, musical, artsy kid somehow?
1: I was kind of a music drama kid hmm? and a tennis player, which, especially in Iowa, does not Put you in like cool jock yeah. uh, realm, but I was uh, thrilled and grateful that they had a team. It just sort of started when I was in high school, and that was my great love and passion. Of and you must have been pretty
2: good because I know you went on and did tennis stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, I put a great amount of time and passion into it.
2: Were you uh, playing music in a way that your friends and You know, schoolmates knew you were, like, a musician? I
1: was, like, a chorus singer. Okay. And, you know, I was in all the plays. Um, Singing on stage? Yeah. Solo singing on stage? Lion in the Wizard of Oz. Wow. Uh, Artful Dodger. Right That kind of thing. Okay. Um, And then, like, sort of mid-high school is when I picked up the guitar, and maybe, like, in the—maybe I would record some stuff and— played in the locker room and or something I don't know it I wasn't I didn't really start performing with the guitar until I went to college where'd you go
2: to college what'd you study
1: I went to a small college in Appleton Wisconsin called Lawrence University uh, I studied English it was the only thing I could think of to study that uh, I wanted to read all the stuff you know and they had fiction writing classes too and any songwriting fortunately no
2: Ah, good answer
1: because uh i had always written stories and i like writing stories and i've written a lot of stories
2: what's your what's what's your pen name but it
1: took (laughs) but it took years to unlearn the stuff that the fiction writing classes imbued in me which was you know too much thinking really
2: you said you started playing when you were in college. So, what was your first? Uh, did you be doing like open mics? Did you have a band at some point or like a
1: coffee house? Yeah. And they would have like students could play there and they had like actual touring people coming through there. I saw Larry Gross, you know that guy? Mm-mm. In the daytime, I'm Mr. Natural, just as happy as he can be. But at night, I'm a junk food junkie. Good Lord <laughs> have pity on me. Hit, you had know, a hit way back when kind of a novelty hit kind of in the dead skunk in the middle of the road I know that one category like yeah, yeah. like when they would play that stuff on you know hit radio <laughs> so he came through he then became uh, the head guy for many years on uh, on uh, mountain stage you know oh, that Oh yeah I know mountain stage yeah, yeah, I think yeah. he just retired from it but Larry Gross was Did you ever the play guy. mountain stage? I have yeah I figure you probably yeah.
2: did at some point but, Yeah um so were you playing at these coffee shops your own stuff or were you playing covers?
1: Mostly my own. Yeah? Yeah. From the beginning, it was just kind of a vehicle for me to, I just wanted to write songs. I mean, yeah, I think I did some covers. I, I probably should have done more, but yeah, I'm, I, wanted, I wrote songs.
2: Any of those ones that you would have been playing back then wind up on any of your records over the, over the decade since? Mm, I don't think so,
1: yeah.
2: no. How many songs have you written? Uh, rough guess,
1: 5,000. How many of them do you remember? Well, if you had asked me this, uh, well, pre-pandemic, but when I was like just touring, mm-hmm. I had a lot of them at the tip of my tongue. How many do, like, how many do I remember to do by heart right now? Or how many do I remember that? Like, oh yeah, I remember that song. Do by heart. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, maybe five or 600. It's funny because sometimes uh, I'll be playing a show and somebody will yell out a song and uh, my first instinct is, ah, I don't know that song. I but haven't done that in little, years.
2: You just need to get on the road. It's like a player
1: <laughs> piano roll in your head, yeah, though. Yeah. yeah, you start it and it's like, oh, yeah. Hmm.
2: So uh, you graduate college. You didn't go on to be an English teacher, or did you? Like, what happened after college? Like, what was your next
1: hop? I auditioned in the like, the last semester of my senior year, I auditioned for a gig playing on the streets of Chicago for the summer. The Mayor's Office of Special Events. Okay. Jane Burns' time. They decided, yeah. Uh, At the same time, they were arresting street singers and throwing them in jail. They were also sponsoring this for the ones that they liked, I guess, to come and, and play in the streets. So that's that's what got me to Chicago, and I started playing seven open mics a week at night and having a, a gig singing during the day. And,
2: and that was paying the bills so you didn't have to have some sort of other like— For a while, yeah. Yeah? For yeah. the summer. For the summer. Um, at some point you wound up teaching tennis, right? Yeah. How far further down the road are we? You know, are we leaping a huge leap from there to there?
1: Well, we're leaping a few years at the tail end of my time in Chicago. That's what I was doing at a club. And then when I got to L.A., I had a really weird job at first, sitting in a little studio, not as nice as this one, with headphones on like these, except in one ear, you'd have KNX All News all the time. And in the other ear, you'd have KFWB all news all the time. So you'd have two all news stations going at you at once and you had to write down in brief every news story and the details and what was mentioned. And like if they mentioned DuPont, then you write it down and then the, the other guys would come along and see that DuPont was in there. And so they'd make a cassette recording because they had tapes going all the time and they'd try to sell it to DuPont. Oh God. So I did that for four months. and it That was seems a, like that'd be a long four months. It was terrible. It was the worst job I ever had, but it kind of Schooled me on a lot of LA and what was going on, so I learned a lot because I was new to the place. And then I started teaching tennis after that, and that was, as a, quote unquote, straight gig. Even though I I wanted to be doing the music, it was, it was fantastic. It was I was outside. I had my own little fiefdom. Eventually, Wilt Chamberlain came along and took some lessons from me. Um, so that was all pretty nice it was it was a healthy way to sort of sustain myself
2: how long between teaching tennis to wilt chamberlain and recording and releasing your first record
1: oh several years yeah and it took um it took meeting some folks chris chandler and amanda stark who had a a group called stark raving chandler and they were just on the road touring uh in a little homemade van truck thing that's when i realized because i'd been you know Playing around town, trying to get a buzz going, getting the suits down, almost getting a record deal a million times, and I wanted it so bad because I wanted to tour, and then I saw these people that were just touring, just doing it, not waiting for somebody to come along and anoint them and say, you can do this. So that was a a big revelation, and then I quit my job, traded in my car and got a van and let my apartment go and just started touring around and doing little gigs. And then very soon after that, I was playing at a festival called High Sierra, and this guy, Dave Margulies, saw me, who was also working at uh, Sony down in L.A. And so a couple months after leaving L.A., leaving it all behind, I was back there playing for the suits in an office. And the difference between being a guy with a job around town trying to be interesting for these people versus actually living the life and being on the road and playing every night and not really caring about that stuff, I think suddenly I was interesting to them. So that was my first record deal on, on Sony work. And it was uh, that first record was called what? Well, first I did an EP called Dog Boy Van, and then I did the Eponymous, meaning it was named Dan Byrne. <laughs> and then we did uh, 50 Eggs that Ani DiFranco produced. And then everything... Went to hell, and that's when the record industry changed, and those guys were out on their ears, and everybody was out on their ear except J. Lo and Jamiroquai on my label. And then I made New American Language, which which was, you know, in a lot of ways maybe my best record. Uh, we took a year to do it and took all the time in the world and we were just living in the studio. And that would have been a great one to be on the major, but it didn't work out that way. Hmm.
2: It is a great one. Uh, let's do your second song. Can I um, get some more coffee? Absolutely. Let's do that. Um, all right, Richard, we rolling? We are rolling. All right, let's uh, do your second song now.
1: I'd been playing the guitar for a while, maybe a few months, written some songs, I guess. It was in the summer, and I was on a college paint crew. I was still in high school, but painting. Like painting houses? Painting dorm rooms. Oh, okay. Mostly, weed had entered my life a little bit before that. Cannabis, you
2: mean? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that
1: stuff. <laughs> uh, and so I think I probably had smoked at work in the afternoon, painting dorm rooms. <laughs> and so I was still feeling it, and I came home, and I decided to. I guess I was enjoying the painting. This was years and years before I actually started painting, but these were my painting lessons. Everything I know about painting I learned from being on that paint crew, using a brush and all that
2: stuff. And you're talking about the other kind of painting now too though, yeah. painting like
1: painting portraits or pictures
2: or, right. or painting. That's right. But I
1: don't I don't find them so different in a way. Just the physical act of using a paintbrush and yeah. So I, I think I was still enjoying that and so I decided to paint my door. Of my room, the upstairs of our house, and I had been at that point. I think listening to Dylan's voice had become like a drug, as much as as anything. My dad hated it beyond anything I've had encountered. <laughs> that may have encouraged me further, <laughs> but in any case, uh, I, as much as his words are integral to his work, I don't think I had paid that much attention. It was simply the form of one guy playing a guitar in in a lot of cases. Not in the case of this song, but, you know, all his early records, obviously. And I think for someone who had listened to the Beatles so, so nonstop, you know, it's one thing to to hear that music, but it's another thing to be alone in your room. You know, one person, you can't quite picture yourself doing that. And I think what was such a revelation when I fell into Dylan was, and Oaks and Woody and the, that ilk, you know, too, was that you could be one person and do it. Talk about your head exploding. Right. Well, you know, it's not just this abstract thing that these People are doing, you know, it's not like watching Bob Beeman jump 29 feet, you know. <laughs> Suddenly you realize you have springs in your legs, too. Right. <laughs> Anyways, so I'd i been listening to the sound of it and the sound of his voice, which just went through you and wasn't trying to be pretty. But I hadn't, I hadn't so much focused on the lyrics at all. And then so I'm painting my door and put Blonde on Blonde on, and suddenly the song comes on. And for whatever reason, I suddenly start listening to the line, to the words, to the lyrics. I suddenly realize that every line kind of means something else, or it's said in a sarcastic, sneering, sardonic way. It's not linear and it's not, yeah, every line just kind of rubs hard against what it's saying and who it's addressing. At least that's the way it felt to me. And I think that's exactly how I felt about, about everything, but hadn't fully found expression in it or maybe even awareness of it. And it all just took me over at that moment and I, like, yeah I'm sure I don't think I've been the same since
2: let's listen to it imagining you paint your door and this coming on uh, this is Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat by Bob Dylan off his 1966 album Blonde on Blonde this is Dan Byrne's second song on this week's episode of Three Song Stories this is Biography Through Music Would you say that your uh your approach to songwriting then changed or your approach to
1: everything also then changed probably everything man just listen to that boy that blistering guitar i mean that that lends up because if otherwise it's just this uh really standard blues progression right? you could have heard that in the fifties, maybe not his voice like yeah. that, but that that progression of that instrumentation, but all, but not that blistering guitar quite. That's, that's wild. I'm not sure in listening to it if it was quite as sneering as I remember it. It just might be just the sound of his voice. I mean, some of the lines, you look so pretty in it, honey, can I jump on it sometime? And I love that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, pandemic, shutdown. You started doing some online stuff. Yeah, what was that like? Great. Yeah, did yeah. you miss being on the road, or were you? It was. It was it kind of like a forced uh, a break.
1: Well, I, I guess it was. You, you start doing different things. I mean, it was like having that was like having a TV show. It felt like having a TV show with interaction. So it's not the. I didn't really compare it to touring. It's just a different thing when you can have sheets in front of you, you know, with lyrics. Suddenly, you can sing anything you ever wrote, any cover you ever wanted to play but didn't want to commit to memory or whatever. So it really opened all that up. And then you could do themes, just pull themes together. So I still do it some, but I was doing it you know, five days a week at one point.
2: Yeah, it was. Uh, those were interesting times. I wasn't there for all of it, but I saw at least a little bit of it. You've got an online radio station, don't you? Sort of. I do, it's called
1: Radio Free Bernstein. Two ends. Two ends. Well, my dad shortened it, so I figured I'd add a little bit. Your last name back.
2: is Bernstein. But,
1: that, but his Bern was. Is,
2: it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, w- what goes on on that radio station? It's
1: like it's like a combination of spoken word. I mean, you. T- it's everything. Right. I mean, it's a lot of. It's all the best stuff I've ever heard, uh, and you know that keeps getting added to. It's a kind of a repository for my stuff, and it's a lot of, you know, weird stuff, cool, funny, skit kind of stuff. Hmm. So,
2: um, I was introduced to you back in the, right around the turn of the millennium. I worked at a bar. I was a coffee shop. We had an open mic, and this dude comes walking in one day, and he's got like new in town. We'd never seen him. Had sort of a big you know, white guy afro almost in a big old Tom Selleck beard. And he got up and he played like Jerusalem and Wasteland. And we were all just transfixed because he had chops. Where was that? Fort Myers. Okay. Yeah, Fort Myers, Liquid Cafe. And we didn't know they weren't his songs. And he kind of became the Pied Piper of the bar. And that's how we were all down there introduced to you. Were those both early songs for you? Because I'm trying to think. I mean, this would have been early... You know, right around 2000, so those must have been among your first songs.
1: Well, they'd been a- kicking around for a while. Wasteland was probably my first really good song. Uh, that was probably around 88. Wow. And Jerusalem, I think, is from 92. Uh, wow. But then you didn't put them, you didn't record them until... Well, I didn't have the, I didn't, I mean, I recorded them. But, right, right. But, but they I weren't on
2: records like... until, like, the late 90s or something like that.
1: Yeah, probably in, like, ninety-seven. Do you remember, like, the, the, the
2: where does a song like Wasteland come? You were out living in L.A., I guess, yeah. because there's, like, that L.A. kind of thing going. Yeah. But, like, was that just angst of being in L.A. and and the looking at the modern world? Or is that such a great song? Like, how did that come to you?
1: I think it was just the experience I was living in, you know? Every single block looks like every single block looks like every single block looks like every single block. But you kept driving because everyone else kept driving gridlock is evil and not knowing your way is evil. That's just, you know, yeah. So it was the driving culture and, and from where I was from, you know, we didn't have these vast uh, stretches of mini mall and, and then Hollywood and, you know, James Dean and just these personages being thrown up there. Like they're, you know, these Greek God types, you know, but then it's like, well, these are real people, you know, they're, how does Joe DiMaggio feel seeing Marilyn up there, you know? How does James Dean's mom feel where he's used for every everything, you know? Those, those still feel real. So, you know, it all tumbled out one night at a place called Al's Bar in downtown L.A. that used to be this really cool, real, like, dingy, dark, dirty, punk rock club down in downtown L.A. before it kind of got gentrified even. And I was just there and just seeing people preening on stage and they you know, they suddenly I mean, I was pretty spooked by images of of the past and of my parents experience and, you know, seeing these people on stage goose stepping like Hitler, you know. Uh so it all just kinda tumbled out. And I think I think when you're younger it's easier to, to write big too. But also I was inspired by those big sprawling Thunder Road, Visions of Johanna, kind of big sprawly songs without tight forms and boundaries. And I, I just thought song was a big playing field and it was cool to be able to use it hmm. like
2: that. Um, Another one of your songs that I think is just amazing is uh, God Said No. And I didn't learn about it until – Quite a few years later, after you know, going back into your discography or whatever, um, I went and looked it up. You played that on All Things Considered like two months after nine eleven. Okay, did you not? Do you not remember that? Not specifically. <laughs> it's on your website. Okay. I listened to it, but. Uh, Then, Well, then uh, what can I ask you if you don't remember?
3: (laughs) Well, ask me anyway. Let's say I remember.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I just, you know, that's such a powerful song, and and I don't need you to have to explain how you wrote it or anything like that. I just was so – I was trying to envision people all across America in November of 2001, you know, listening to you talk to Linda Wertheimer – and they played the entirety of that song. And that's just such a powerful song. And then when I put it in the context of, of that time, it was, I don't know, it was just kind of remarkable to me. Why is that? I don't know. Just because it was already remarkable and it got remarkabler. Because of the that moment? Well, it's just a, it's a very, it's a song that makes you think about now is all we have. You know, it's kind of like it makes you think about, you know, being in the moment and dealing with the world. And we were two months after September 11th.
1: Yeah, but there's always something. I mean, that's, that's, I think, what a powerful song should do or should be. It's like it, it should speak to every moment as though it's intended for just right now.
2: I accept that.
1: <laughs> um, that's a God said no response to a God said
0: no
2: question. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> there you go. Um, so uh, I watched uh, Walk Hard last night for the first time in a long time. Yeah. God, it's such a good movie. Yeah. When was the last time you watched it? Have you seen it I've bunch? seen it
1: recently because my daughter saw it for the first time. All right. Like the it's
2: beginning
1: was, I'm cutting in half pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's just ridiculous. You were involved with that. Tell yeah. us the short
1: version of that story, how that came about, and what was that like? Jeez. I got to know Jake Kasdan, Lawrence's elder son. they both done real well, him and John Kasdan. Done a lot of stuff. Jake was a good friend of Chuck Plotkin's wife's nephew. Got that? Yeah. So Chuck Plotkin was was my guy. He produced my first records and known him for a long time. Um, you know he's famous for producing half of Bruce's work and even a Dylan record and all kinds of stuff. But when I got to know Jake, I wasn't, I was just hanging around LA, teaching tennis, playing my gigs. He was real young, like 19. He had gone to college for a semester and decided it wasn't for him and learned more working on his dad's movie sets, you know, Silverado. And so, yeah, we were just hanging out playing Scrabble for five, six hours at a time at coffee shops. Anyway, it got to the time where I was making records finally, and he was making movies. So he put a song of mine from 50 Eggs, one of my early records, uh, into his first movie called Zero Effect. The song was called One Dance. I think it was at the end. Then years later, we had lunch, and he said, Yeah, I'm, i am got this script or this idea. This. He told me about the, the walk hard scenario, and Dewey Cox, and that this movie would musically cover all the phases of his career, which spanned from, you know, 50s to to today, probably, really. And I was immediately on board. I think I was also a little sick of what I was doing anyway, making records and touring, and felt like I was probably plowing in well-plowed earth. And this was a chance to inhabit somebody else's body and psyche and write songs, you know. It was like being 16 again and writing my first songs. And it was all new and fresh. I was doing that. Mike Viola, who I later met through that, was doing much the same thing from his end in New York. For two years, every songwriting instinct I had was filtered through my conception of Dewey Cox. It was a, a master class or or felt like the, what was that project? The, Ma- the Manhattan Project right. where all the scientists went out to the desert and put aside all their work right. and collaborated to make a bomb, right? Right. It felt like that with a few of us songwriters. Felt like that to me. Um, so I just put everything aside and everything became uh dewy.
2: And in some ways they would constrain you to like an era, but then you had freedom to just explore that era however you wanted, I presume.
1: Well one time Jake said, uh, need some sort of uh sixties uh era Dylan songs kind of like like he's influenced or, you know. And so I got to do that, like just fall into that kind of it was like, you know, falling into blonde on blonde land yourself.
2: Were you trying to be humorous with the lyrics, though? Because, I mean, obviously the song, the, the movie's a comedy, so you didn't want to do it too straight. You needed to do it in such a way that it had like that comedic Well, in some tang. of
1: it, it's like you go to extremes and there's the humor, you know. Uh, one Side Beautiful Ride, which is at the end where he sings it and dies, sadly. <laughs> uh, Spoiler alert. I mean, I think it's it's a, a great, pretty much straight song. There's one funny line in it. It's like a wink where he goes, uh, all the things that he or wants to do or how he wants to live his life or, or how he would traveling, not just for business, suddenly pops in with these other things, uh... You know, so some of it's subtle because we were trying to write great songs, but also some of the humor was context yeah. rather well, than that one being was, like yeah, jokes. That
2: one was a pretty sincere song, for sure. Beautiful that, Ride? Yeah, totally. the one at the end. Is that the one that has, it's about make a little music yeah, every yeah. day till you die? Yeah.
1: That's that's good stuff. I mean, it's a pretty great song, just straight.
2: What was the like to see that for the first time? So, like what going to a theater, or did you get to see a screening of it or yeah. something?
1: mixed. Uh, to be honest, I mean it's I've liked it more and more over time. The thing is, in my I was making the movie in my head for two years. Right, right. Two. Yeah. Wow, it was, was never going gonna on. be that movie. It was never gonna be that movie. Clearly never. I think I took Dewey much more seriously than anybody else in the <laughs> world did, including John C. Riley, you know, who played him. Uh the first time I met him, I was super starstruck. Not because he was John C. Riley, <laughs> Because I was finally meeting Dewey. And I was like, uh, uh, dude, it's Dewey. It's Dewey
2: <laughs> Um Okay, we're going to get to your third song, but i got to ask you. So I've been familiar with your song, Tiger Woods, for quite a while. I looked it up, and you wrote that song like a year after he won the like U.S. Amateur. I mean, he was early in That's his right. career. You, That's right. You
1: called That's it. right. He was not a household <laughs> name at all. Yeah. At first... I probably had to like say who this guy was. Right. Yeah. I didn't hear it till he was a household
2: name. And yeah. I just assumed it was that. But yeah, yeah. nice job on Ground that. Ground floor, one. baby. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, if you're listening and you've never heard his song, Tiger Woods, look it up. Um, okay, let's get to your third song.
1: Sometime when I was in still in college, uh, I got to hear Sonny and Brownie. They came to a little theater. Like one of those sort of 99-seat equity waiver theaters in the town there. And uh, seeing like legends like that up close, incredible. Uh, Peter Tork of the Monkees had come through and played a little bar with a little rock outfit. That was cool too. But this was like sunny and brownie and I knew their stuff. and I. By that time I was listening to a lot of blues and a lot of old country as well as, you know my folk singer-songwriter gods. And it was really interesting because they they had been playing together for 40 years and they clearly did not get along and made no bones about hiding it. I mean, this was a little place, so maybe they were on better behavior when they played Carnegie Hall. I'm sure they were. But in this little theater in Appleton, Wisconsin, they had they felt no compunction about you know, I mean, it's like, can I play too? Can I play a little bit too? <laughs> when one of them like be like soloing. And they just like, they just, it just looked like a bad marriage. It was wild. Never forgot that. But then I started listening to Lightning Hopkins. And that guy was and is still the best. That's the best blues I've ever heard. To me, that's the absolute essence of Every, let's. That's Wrigley Field, and everything else sort of emanates out from that, and is some version of it, but nothing, to me. I mean, I like Robert Johnson, you know, the seminal stuff. I understand that Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday. That's leaning to jazz, though. If for me, that just the essence of blues, the lonely blues. I like Chicago blues, that you know. Little Walter and all the jumping, you know, stomping blues. But I like the what they call the country blues the best. And that Enlightenment just with his guitar. God. So I listened to that. And I listened over and over and over to this one song that I guess we'll hear. And I learned to play it. And later when I was down in Chicago playing in the subways that became one of the staples of stuff that I would play, uh, and, you know, great harmonica stuff, and you could just play it over and over and over again. and You could make up uh, verses if you wanted to, but I never saw the need too much. And then when I was in Chicago, like my first few months there, a buddy of mine, Tim, from high school, came through, and we decided that we wanted to go to New York. We'd never been to New York, and it sounded like the great thing to do. And we didn't have a way out there. We didn't have any money. We didn't have cars. So we went to the driveway place where you drive somebody else's car. Hmm. And we thought, "Oh, well, this is what we'll do. We'll go to New York. And they had, and, they, and she, at first she didn't want to let us because we didn't have anything. We didn't have any credit. We had nothing, no (laughs) cards, nothing. And we put down our particulars, and she looked at it. And it felt like, you know, this was not a high-rent operation. It felt like we should be able to do this. (laughs) We had driver's licenses. She looked at our application. She was like, pretty slim, fellas, pretty slim. (laughs) But she let us do it. And so the car we got was going to Rome, New York. And we thought, well, that's New York. Let's go. So we drove to Rome, New York and dropped off the car. And we knocked on the door, and they were cooking some fine-smelling spaghetti sauce. They all looked ready to eat this spaghetti, and we were like, please ask us in, please ask us in. But they didn't. (laughs) So we dropped off the car, and then we realized we were like eight hours from New York City. And we slept on an outdoor bocce court. This was in, this is pretty good. this is like November, December. But we're going to pop for a hotel. And then we found our way to the interstate and we hitchhiked the rest of the way. Then we were in New York City and we, we found a friend from our hometown who was living there. And we slept on her floor. And then we were looking through the, probably the village voice. And we saw that Lightning Hopkins was going to be playing at a club called Tramps. And so we went down there and we bought our tickets. And we were three hours early. And then they let us in and we were like the first ones in. So we went to the front. So we were in the front two seats. And it was a small stage. It wasn't a big stage. The stage might have been a foot. And so we were sitting up there and like we had our feet like propped up against the stage. And then lightning came out, and he just sat in a chair right in front of us and played this white electric guitar all by himself. I don't remember if he played airplane blues or not, but he played Lightning Hopkins, and he had a guy with him. I don't know, it might have been his nephew traveling with him. And after the set, the MC guy came out, and he said, Mr. Lightning Hopkins, put your hands together for Mr. Lightning Hopkins. And the guy who was with him jumped up on the stage and grabbed the
3: microphone. He said, Mr. Sam Lightning Hopkins. And you just
1: like, it just shook you. It's like, yeah, you know. And the whole thing was just pure and serious. And a few weeks later, Lightning died. It might have been the last show he played. Mm. I think at the time, I, I figured that it seemed like it might have been, or second to the last. And I don't know if that, I think it would have made just as much impact, but that was like this extra thing that maybe we'd seen him for the last time. Uh, it's, I don't know. I've seen a million shows, million sets by a million folks ever since. I, I just don't know if I've ever seen anything better.
2: You want to listen to it? Yeah. I've got the, uh, the original 1949 album release, and I have a live version from uh, the Ash Grove Club in Los Angeles in 1965. It's got a nice clean signal on it.
1: Let's hear the original on this. Okay. Got a woman.
2: This is Airplane Blues by Lightning Hot Sam. Lightning Hopkins, is that what she said? Uh, released in 1949 is the B-side of the 78 RPM Schlack record featuring Mad With You on the A-side. It's Dan Burn's third song on this week's episode of Three Song Stories.
1: Those spidery little guitar things he does. You know, it's just so naked and so bare and so pure, so beautiful. I mean, the thing is, something like that start to drift away, you know, and it just starts evoking other things, and I re- and then I come back and I realize I miss things. That's why you listen to just something over and over and over and over and over. Just see if you can actually listen to the thing from start to finish and stay with it, because it, I'm always, like, breaking off into, you know, because it just evokes so many things, and then you realize, oh, yeah. I missed that one little <laughs> little guitar thing I wanted to listen to. Hmm. Um,
2: you know, the currency of our show is this idea that songs can become bound to memories. You know, have you ever consciously reflected on that happening to your fans and people who listen to your songs and how they'll have moments in their life that'll be tied to your artwork, you know? Well, they
1: tell me that they do. Uh... I think that's cool. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, well, I guess it's what you hope. Right. And it's, um, I mean, I think playing gives me a lot. And so it's a good, it's a sort of a good bargain. It's a good deal that it, that it works
2: both ways. Hmm. Um, you hurt your hand or finger or something, right? At yeah. some point. What's the short version of that story? And, and was it, uh, was there a time when you weren't sure you're were gonna be able to do your part?
1: Yeah. Well there there was. Uh, I s I we were living in upstate New York and uh there's a lot of snow up there. And uh so I, I, I was working a snowblower and it jammed where I I didn't know it was on or something and I, I tried to unjam it. And so, instead of sticking a stick in there, I stuck my hand in there and so, it engaged. Ooh. So I lost uh, a bit of two fingertips on your fret hand. Yeah, so that much. I mean, but the thing is, at the when it happened, and when I went into by that much, he means like more than half an inch. Well, I th- the thing the scary part was when it. I mean, when it happened, it was just you know, really, really, really mangled and bones and everything and. The surgeon wasn't sure when I even went in, when they put me under, like how much the finger would be saved, especially the middle finger. That was the worst. I remember, you know, even as I'm going under, I'm telling her once again that I'm a guitar player and please try to save that second knuckle. That's also in the (laughs) biopic. If you got that second (laughs) knuckle, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Then Then at that point, I felt like, then I'm good to go. And if I don't, then I'm really screwed. I remember when it actually happened, I I I think I screamed, my life is over. Yeah. And I just thought that that was all gone. So yeah, super scary. And uh, And when I woke up, I sort of wiggled my fingers and realized that I had that second knuckle. And even with months of rehab and not playing the guitar, uh, ahead of me. Uh, I felt like I'd be all right. Um, the silver lining was during that time I started playing the piano a lot mm. and uh, singing songs to it and writing songs. And, you know, even at this time, uh, if there's a piano sitting there, I'll always go to the piano But mm. before a guitar. It's just a cooler song, <laughs> instrument to sing with.
2: Um. Uh, are you able to, like, have you regained full use? I think so. Are there any things you can do now that you couldn't do before because you got short fingers? (laughs) Yeah, well,
1: I think because I'm more, I think, one, I play chords that no one else does. (laughs) Inadvertently, all the the time.
2: Because you're forced into that. Well, I'm
1: just, well, it's not even that. I just miss, you know. (laughs) So I get these cool kind of, Clanky sounding chords, but I like those anyway, and I go for those anyway. The other thing is I think because I'm more conscious of that hand and those fingers, um I probably go for stuff that I didn't. So and I'm appreciative of of it, of the simple act of of playing where I wasn't before. So, you know, in looking back it, it was like silver linings all around.
2: Uh, we're gonna do a speed round. Here momentarily. Last question before the speed round, though, is uh, you got a favorite stage? You got a favorite stage you played on, one you like to go back to? Last night was pretty good.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I missed the bottom line in New York. You know, everybody had played there. Bruce had done all these legendary shows there, and everybody played there. But it was just, uh, it was down in the village. It was, the place was big, but not, you know, it still felt like, like a like your home. And it was, there were seats were right up there, right up at the, you know, it's like the lightning thing. You could step on someone's hand, uh, so it was just I don't know it. And and New York's always felt like home, too. So it was, it was great. But a London place, the Troubadour there, that that had that same kind of energy. I don't know really any place where where people are there and excited and responding i got no problem with all right
2: speed round uh, so you know try to be speedy you don't have to kill yourself though but be prepared for anything um do you have a nickname that stuck over the course of your life that you'd be willing to share
1: nah a bunch of different ones anyone that maybe rises to the top more than the rest i don't think so uh I was Birdman in college because I drew birds. I was Dusty one summer because I told people I wanted to be called Dusty, (laughs) you know, that (laughs) kind of thing. All right. That's good. Um, uh, When was the last time you purchased music that you could hold in your hand? Uh, A couple of days ago, I was in Atlanta, and I bought a vinyl of uh, uh, Grease for my daughter. The soundtrack to Grease?
2: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, does Dan Byrne do karaoke? He has. Is that something that you would like to do? Is that something that you, I mean, it seems like most musicians say no, but you don't care? What, to do karaoke? Yeah, most, most if singers. If I'm in a karaoke
1: bar and everybody's doing it?
2: You're going to do it.
3: Well, sure. Okay, fine.
2: <laughs> um, if you were a championship wrestler, uh-huh. what music would you enter to? Ooh, the Valkyries thing. Ah, the
1: I mean, Wagner. What else?
2: What's your wrestler name? The colander. <laughs> <laughs> Explain
0: yourself, Dan Byrne.
1: Do I have to? Uh, uh, I, I, hey, I, man! I will shred you. I, you, I, will you. I, I will. I will strain <laughs> the water out, you. out of <laughs> you. <laughs> okay. I will
2: dehydrate you. <laughs> um. Okay. If a bartender made a drink or a cocktail that represented you, what would it contain?
1: Jack and Coke.
2: Just Jack and Coke. (laughs) Yeah, but it would have a new name. (laughs) Which would be called what? Bernstein. The Bernstein. If you had to guess, what song do you think you've listened to the most times in your life? Probably want to hold your hand. Um, Person who you've never had a chance to share a stage with that you'd love to someday.
1: When you say share a stage, what do you mean? What does that mean? Does that Uh, mean you play before them and then they play or you're all playing together? You're all playing
2: together. All playing together. And maybe to put you less on the spot, who would you like to share a stage with from all time? Yeah,
0: living or dead in their prime.
2: Wow. Oh, I'd like to sing duets with Billy Holiday.
0: Hmm.
2: Um... What activities or pursuits make you lose track of time the most? Well, sleeping. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you mean in my waking That might be the state? best
0: answer to that question that we've ever had. Because
2: uh, we're just gonna leave it at this, that. We're just gonna move right I don't think on we can feed from it. that. You are—that's like yeah. a Zen cone or whatever. God, it's yeah, you're a monk, Dan. Uh. Song you wish you could hear again for the very first time. Wow. Paint it black. Album you wish you could hear again for the first time.
1: Blood on the track.
2: My favorite Dylan. Uh, Most overplayed song of all time in your opinion.
1: Anything by Steely Dan.
2: Any songs you'll avoid listening to. Again. (laughs) Steely Dan's not your cup of tea.
1: I don't know why. But yeah. Doesn't make me feel good.
2: Uh, any of your songs that you're you're kind of over, played too many times or been asked too many times, etc. cetera?
1: Not really, because context and, you know, last night I played Jerusalem, which I've played a billion times, and I wouldn't sit around home playing it, but because probably 95% of the people there hadn't heard it, it was brand new, so it was brand new for me too, so... I don't think you, I don't think a song gets tired. The context becomes You do, repetitive. but that can but that can <clears throat> right. that can uh, change again. Also, yeah, if you play it for a let's say a non-English speaking audience, it becomes a totally different thing. It becomes about cadence and melody. Hmm.
2: If you could broadcast a song into the head of every person on the planet in one big collective musical moment, which song would you choose?
1: Well, the Beatles kind of already did it with <laughs> All You Need Is Love. I mean, uh, let's see if I can think of a better one, though.
0: This would include people who had never heard music
2: before. <laughs> like, everyone in one moment. In their head. In yeah. their head. We, you beam a song into every human's head.
1: Maybe that sati song. do, 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 do. That piece... Might just chill everybody
2: out. Um, album you would choose if you could only have one album for for all of your rest of your days.
1: One album.
2: Yep, something that you would not. And I know it's not Steely Dan. Something that would you <laughs> that you would uh, you know it wouldn't get on your nerves. I mean, anything would eventually. But if you only had one, you'd have to really. Maybe
1: Thelonious Monk. Ah, huh. or. Miles Davis, the the pictures of Spain, you know, nothing that would be too linear, you know, something that could allow for repeated differences in listening.
2: Um, Any musicians or bands that you have come into awareness of fairly recently that you you become fans of? Or do you come into music, new music recently, um, you know, often these days, or are you stuck in your music?
1: Um well, it's funny, a lot of the stuff that I've heard on this last month, this tour I was on, like just some of the openers and stuff, i really I really enjoyed it all. Uh well there's a guy down in uh that was at the Thirty A Songwriters Festival named Abe Partridge. Really liked him. Uh I think he was from Georgia or Mississippi or Alabama. Cat Mills was really great. Uh, Acrasia in Pittsburgh did a really good set. Acrasia in Pittsburgh did a really good set. Uh, Eric Cuff's, Orit uh, Shimoni in Canada.
2: Oh, I've heard she, she was recommended by one of our Canadian guests years ago.
1: She's great. She's got Israeli roots. She's got Canadian roots, and it's all synthesized real nice. Hmm uh yeah she'd be a good guest this guy carlos trujillo out in new mexico totally unknown i've known him since he was in high school phenomenal uh this guy Daltrey was pretty good last night
2: (laughs) are you playing with him again or is that the end of it for for now we'll see but nothing on the books nothing on the books Um, 14 year old self, your 14 year old self, what would he think of you today and what you've done since?
1: I think he'd like the show.
2: Um, I told you I watched Dewey Cox last night. You got one song in you left. That's quote, a final masterpiece that will sum up your entire life.
1: Do I? Yeah. We'll see.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's time for you to recommend three people.
1: Well, I already gave you Orit and Orit Shimoni, Carlos Trujillo. So this is a guy I knew way back in Chicago one of the best songwriters anybody who's heard him has ever heard uh I think he's a little uh hermit like so if, if you can if you can dig him up I think he's north of New York City right now His name is Frank Tedesso T E D E S S O uh he'd be he'd be interesting to talk to
2: okay well do your part as much as you can to connect us with them and we'll do our best. Sounds good. Um before we have you play your your song, you got any final thoughts for us and our listeners?
1: God. This was really fun. I I like what you're doing. It's it's it opened up a lot of stuff. I'm sure uh I can see why people like like this show. Thanks for doing it. We make three song
2: stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is online content producer and host. Our production assistant is Jared, the intern, Gonzalez. Christophus is our executive producer, and our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's parting tune, we're handing it off to Dan. This is him performing his song Regent Street for us in the studio of WUSF Public Media in Tampa, which is where we recorded this episode. This is the song Dan said he covered Roger Daltrey's cover of when he recorded
3: it. Keep listening. Don't go down to Regent Street I'm ignoring the news reports today I'm ignoring the weather and the clouds of gray Shut all the poetry out of my mind Power of the attorney remains unsigned My darkest thoughts remain discreet But don't go down to Regent Street Street. Don't cut down to Regent Street. The crowd is thick, no room to run. I got a job that must be done. I try to clear my thoughts, try not to care. My directions say go anywhere. Your eyes avoid uncertified meat, but don't go down to Regent Street. Don't go down to Regent Street. Take to the high road, don't release your dry load. Slime about, Cairo nervous wreck. See you later, alligator stuck in the elevator. Signal to the way. Check. Go down to the river and toss that trash Go down to the doctor and clean that rash Go down to the priest and cleanse your sins Go down to the tanner, dye your skins Go down to the usher and demand a seat But don't go down Street, don't go down to Regent Street. Take to the high road, don't release your dry. Signal to the waiter to burn that check. As the shepherd, why sheep don't bleed? Tell the blind bartender to serve them up neat. Tell the hostess take a break, she's not too greet, Tell the drummer not to drum, he's got no beat. Tell the croupier look the other way. Don't go down to Regent Street. Don't go down to Regent Street. Don't go down.